You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. They've got me pinned against the wall. It's political and predictable. Anything you say will be exaggerated and completely blown out of proportion. Ignore them if you can, but I doubt you will. They're out to control how people feel by pushing their agenda on your subconscious. While you're unaware, they start the brainwashing process. Time to call out the unwilling. The ones who need to be cut deep in order to have feeling. You're not used to facing opposition. You've done all the talking. Now it's time to listen. I understand you want to make a difference. Well, you can start by sticking to your own business. You're an entertaining man trying to be a politician. Stop abusing your position. Follow him, follow them, follow me, follow you, follow who? Follow your leader. Do you even know what you're buying into before you? Follow your leader. It's the blind leading the blind. Don't be so eager to follow your leader. Know the truth before you try and turn me into a believer and make me follow your leader. Conservative, uptight, right-wing Republican, last time I checked, I was none of them. But that's the brush you want to paint me with, taint me with. Some aim to please, but you aim and miss. ADD, maybe, but I can't tune you out. I would change the station, but your signal's too loud, and you're too proud to realize you're a moron. Defend what you want, whether it's right or wrong, and this applies to both sides of the equation. Arrogant men in power sure are frustrating. On a pedestal, you hear them ranting and raving, proudly proclaiming what they know nothing about. I hear you talking loud, but I will not allow Tinsel Town to show me how to run my life. Sure, you can sing and dance, but that don't mean you are qualified to give America advice. Follow him, follow them, follow me, follow you, follow who, follow your leader. Do you even know what you're buying into before you follow your leader? It's the blind leading the blind. Don't be so eager to follow your leader. Know the truth before you try and turn me into a believer and make me follow your leader. That is a reading of Follow Your Leader by John Rubin. Track four on his album, The Boy vs. the Cynic, released 2005, June 21st to be exact. That is the year I graduated high school. And this album was... Very influential on me. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. It is August 1st, 2021. Episode 115 of Season 3. Episode 180 of this podcast. Last night, I had the opportunity, the pleasure, the privilege of introducing my oldest son, Josiah, to the Ridley Scott film, Gladiator. His birthday was yesterday. He turned 14, and he had never seen Gladiator before, but we watched it. Some of my other older boys were welcome to watch with us. They declined. They were not interested. They wanted to watch something else, do something else with their evening. But Josiah and I watched the entire film and really enjoyed it. And I'm so impressed And I will brag on my children from time to time, even while I am clear-headed about their ongoing maturity process. I will brag on my oldest son for being very insightful. He watched Gladiator and commented, 
throughout the movie on what was going on and, ah, so this is what's happening. And, oh, okay, that guy is bad news and such like that. But I find it interesting as we watched this movie and I'm thinking about it in light of recent events, in light of the podcast episode I just recorded yesterday, Anti-Authority Nonconformist, this topic of authority and who the rebel is and who is the revolutionary was on my mind as I watched Russell Crowe's performance as Maximus Meridius. Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am thinking to myself about the conversation that he has with the emperor at the beginning of the film. Marcus Aurelius calls Maximus into his tent after a victorious battle. And he tells Maximus that he is an old man who is dying, but that when he dies, he does not want his son, Commodus, to inherit the empire. He doesn't want him being emperor after him. But Maximus, meanwhile, he does want to be entrusted. He wants to give him charge over this responsibility of giving the empire back to the people. It has been an empire for too long, ruled by emperors for too long, and Marcus Aurelius wants the Republic to be restored and the Senate to be restored to its original place of honor, its original place of prominence and importance. And what do you know, not to give anything away, but who hasn't seen Gladiator except for my 14-year-old son before yesterday and my next three down and the two youngest and my daughter. Not to give too much away, but Commodus, when he learns that his father is not going to have him succeed to the throne, he strangles or suffocates his father. He murders him. And then he calls Maximus in and puts him on the spot to kiss his hand, kiss his ring, to swear allegiance, to swear fealty to Commodus as the new emperor. Maximus, meanwhile, knows that Commodus has murdered the emperor. And he also knows, furthermore, what Marcus Aurelius's last wishes were, that Maximus actually take trusteeship of the empire until it can be handed back to the people and to the Senate. So Maximus refuses to kiss Commodus's hand. And as soon as he leaves the tent, his fate is sealed, or so Commodus thinks. Commodus has already given instructions to the guards, the officers, the soldiers present to arrest Maximus, to take him outside the camp and execute him. And not content with that, to go to the home of Maximus Decimus Meridius and murder his wife and son. This just goes to show what a cruel, evil tyrant Commodus is 
and will be. He is not content to destroy Maximus. He wants everyone to know that he is willing to kill an innocent woman and an innocent child and that nobody's family, no one's loved ones, no one's friends are safe if they cross Commodus. Sure, you're willing to risk something personally, but are you willing to risk your innocent loved ones being destroyed by this tyrant? Maximus does not get home in time to save his wife and son. When he arrives, they've already been murdered. But next thing you know, he is being sold as a slave and is fighting as a gladiator. And all of that is to say there's this recurring theme in Western civilization that looks a lot like that story. And this is what distinguishes Western civilization from the alternatives. Western civilization is not a foregone conclusion, but this is Western civilization, this kind of a story. The noble servant of the public, loyal to his state, loyal to a good ruler, a just ruler, a philosopher king in Marcus Aurelius, loyal to the principle of good government, refusing to submit to corrupt usurpations, to power grabs, which are capricious and arbitrary and not based on sound principles, but based on naked ambition, ego, a will to power. In the story of Gladiator, as told by Ridley Scott, with help obviously from lots of others, Maximus is not the rebel. The rebel is Commodus. Whether Commodus is called emperor is beside the point. He is not the rightful emperor. In fact, he is a patricide. He has murdered his father. And as the movie goes on, my son points out, he's losing it. Commodus is dissolving and falling apart. He is a crazy person. He has no business being in charge of himself, much less an empire. His sister is terrified of him because he's threatening her and her son. And she is trying to work behind the scenes to help the Senate fulfill the wishes of her father, who she knows has been murdered by her brother. But Commodus is a madman who is selling the grain to pay for extravagant games designed to win love for himself. He wants to be greater than his father was, but he wants to take an easy route to get there. He wants to cover up what he has done to Marcus Aurelius so that no one remembers Marcus Aurelius because they're too distracted by bread and circuses. Meanwhile, the people in the know behind the scenes, the people in government, they rule and serve his rulership out of fear, not out of love, not out of devotion, not on principle, except this one principle, that they are terrified of their families being destroyed, and so they submit. 
All of this is to say where we find ourselves right now as a country is, I'm afraid, a little bit too much like the story of Gladiator. In the story of Gladiator, you have someone abiding by the principles of good government, seeking to be a faithful servant of the public. When he is asked to swear fealty to Commodus, will he serve Commodus like he served Marcus Aurelius? Maximus replies, he will always serve Rome. And that's such an interesting way to sidestep and also redirect that question. That is the wrong question. Don't ask if I'm going to serve the man. Ask if I'm going to serve my community, my country, my nation, my people. Marcus Aurelius earns love and devotion because he rules and governs in a wise way, circumspectly, giving honor to whom honor is due among his subjects. And because even despite those internal feelings he might have to give to his son this throne upon his death, he puts those personal feelings aside and he doesn't rule based on that even in his final days. It might comfort an old man to deny that he has failed to raise his son Commodus as he should have. It might comfort a man to gloss over that and appoint his son successor anyways. But Marcus Aurelius doesn't take that path. In fact, he does the hard thing or tries to in his final days by making Maximus the successor because as he tells Maximus, Commodus is not a moral man. So what do we do if we are in a similar predicament to Maximus? What do we do if you have persons usurping the proper order of things, usurping good government, trying to arbitrarily change everything, and actually in the process being not progressive so much as revolutionary, distracting us with bread and circuses, even as they are selling our supplies of grain to the point that in two years, as Lucilla, the daughter of Marcus Aurelius, sister of Commodus, tells the senators behind the scenes when she meets with them in secret, Commodus is selling the grain supplies to pay for these games. Rome is going to starve to death in two years. I hope everyone's enjoying the games while they last. Well, that's very much where we find ourselves with money being printed and given away willy-nilly. Where is this money coming from? The senator asks Lucilla. What pays for it? The future, Lucilla says. There, there's a parallel. There's a parallel right now. Inflation is trending upward. I just saw a headline this morning that Nestle is going to raise prices due to inflation. So what happens if myself, for instance, I see my wages decreased 
I see my drive time being taken away here recently after nine years, not two years, nine years of working in oil and gas, being able to charge from doorstep to doorstep. I recently had my drive time to and from the facility cut because we have to make everyone equal and it has to be done fairly. Everybody has to be charging their billable hours from when they get to the plant till when they leave the plant. Well, that's 10 hours a week that now I have to either work extra or I just don't get paid for. Whereas I have been paid for those things for the past nine years. That's a major pay cut. And besides that, I find myself here lately being managed a lot more closely than I formerly have been. In nearly a decade, I have never been managed as closely as I am here lately in detail. And I have this sinking feeling that every minute and hour of overtime is going to be scrutinized and, if possible, if at all possible, trimmed, whatever that does to my budget, whatever that does to my ability to provide for a wife and seven children, I'm going to see my wages decreasing. Meanwhile, the cost of everything continues to rise. And what pays for it? The future, as Lucilla says. What pays for these things? Kick the can down the road. Elections have consequences, and so do coups and attempted coups. People who desire power above all things, releasing, as I believe anyway, a virus from a lab in Wuhan, China, hoisting that on the world so as to gain an advantage in the chaos, being positioned to take advantage, seeking to destabilize the current status quo and in the fracas to make a bid for supremacy, for dominance. The Great Leap Forward, which was undertaken by Mao Zedong decades ago, cost hundreds of thousands of lives in China. But the ends justified the means, as Mao saw it, because on the other end of this Great Leap Forward, China would have, if not a parity yet, something close to it with developed Western nations. Why, given the legacy and tradition of Mao Zedong and the Communist Party in China, why should we suppose that the CCP would not be willing to kill millions of people, their own, others around the world, in order to finally overtake America, to regain face after centuries of having been dictated terms to by Western powers. As Xi Jinping sees it, now is China's moment. We happen to have someone in the White House, a party in power, if tenuously, which I happen to believe is more threatened by, more hostile to Republicans and conservatives in this country than they are to communists in China. We are the greater threat to their 
grip on power being regained, being consolidated as they see it. What pays for it? The future. The future of our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Elections have consequences. But it isn't Republicans and it isn't conservatives, as I see it, who are the revolutionaries here. We are not the ones who are the insurrectionists here. We are the ones pointing to our nation's founding principles and saying these are being violated in the way that business is being carried out. This is not regular order. And you have a lot of folks who very similar to Lucilla, they know how the game is played and they will work very quietly behind the scenes until Commodus has more enemies than friends. And then they will strike. And in the meantime, they will be humble, obedient servants. The trouble with that is that unless you have somebody like a Maximus, someone who is willing to do things openly and lose everything, that moment never comes because everybody is waiting on everybody else to object. So nobody objects. And that becomes the new status quo. The whole reason why Commodus thinks he can go after Maximus is because he has arranged for himself to be declared emperor by murdering the previous emperor, his father. And just like in our country, you no doubt have people in ancient Rome who say, however he came to it, he is the emperor now. He has that position. So let's just try and ride this out, make the best of it, accommodate. But that only goes so far. When the bread runs out, when there's no more money to pay for the circuses, then what? And if you see that coming and you know that it's just a matter of months, maybe years, do you feel so intimidated and threatened by threats of having everything that belongs to you, that is near and dear to you, destroyed? Or do you have the foresight to say, everything I have is going to be destroyed sooner or later by this man if I don't stand up to him, if I don't object, if I don't maintain that this is bad form, if I don't oppose this manfully on principle. Fear is the mind killer, as Frank Herbert writes in his famous science fiction series, Dune. Fear is the mind killer means that when people are afraid and they give in to that fear, it destroys their ability to reason, problem solve, troubleshoot, think their way out of bad situations. And this is what we read in the Proverbs when it says that the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man is entrapping, but whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. I think part of the reason why that's true is because you can't ever figure out what target you're aiming for when you're afraid of man. You're not just dealing with one moving target, you're dealing with an endless number of moving targets. And once everybody gets this in their head that you are motivated by your fear of others, 
then it becomes a kind of game wherein everyone around you takes turns trying to see if they can control you and push your buttons by pushing you around, by intimidating you, by threatening you. Whoever can threaten you the hardest, the most, can get the most use out of you. But then also you have less and less utility when you are more easily intimidated. So then you become less interesting and it becomes more like sport to push you around, to intimidate you. However, on the flip side, when we're talking about God, who doesn't change, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, when he sets the standard and when we follow the admonition to trust in him and to fear him, because that's the beginning of wisdom, all of a sudden we have one target and it's fixed and it's not moving all the time. We have one target. We're playing for an audience of one. And whatever anybody else says or thinks of us, when we trust in God, that standard is reliable. That doesn't mean that everything's going to always go according to your best laid plans. That doesn't mean that everything's always going to be pleasant. Sometimes trusting in the good Lord means you will suffer. You will lose something dear to you. And yet, which is better? To suffer for righteousness sake, where you can at least have a good conscience and you can at least persevere under trial and have your faith tested and develop perseverance as a result, or to suffer because you're wicked. See, that's the false choice. That's the false choice that Lucilla and the senators, these other soldiers and officers who are serving Commodus despite knowing exactly who and what he is, that's the false choice they make. To kick the can down the road and submit to that, they cement their own doom and destruction because it will not save them. His mismanagement is still going to come home to roost. Those chickens are still going to come home to roost that he's mismanaging the economy and society. He's miscarrying justice. This is all about him. He's an unstable individual, oversensitive, overreactive, entirely self-absorbed, and not at all moral. So then, why give in to him, even in the short term, and even in a moment, except that that is all too typical? That is the story of Western civilization, is that the crowd, the mob, the teeming throng doesn't know what justice is most of the time. You read that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told to bow down to this golden statue of the king, commanded anybody who doesn't bow down to this golden statue of the king in the book of Daniel is going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, burned alive. We don't see the majority of the king's subjects standing with those three youths. It's those three youths standing alone, together, but alone. God is faithful. Their response is, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Why is that? What's so important about bowing down to a statue? Well, the important thing is, you're saying that this statue 
is now your God, your highest principle. All other principles must be subordinated. Rulers, leaders, individuals, family, friends, acquaintances, co-workers, managers, bureaucrats, people. People are people. Whatever their title, wherever you find them, people are people. When people want first and foremost oaths of fealty, first and foremost they want unquestioning obedience, and they make orders just for the sake of being obeyed, just to see if they can make you do this thing, that's a dangerous path on principle, on the principle of idolatry, righteousness versus wickedness, wisdom versus folly, the fear of man lays a snare. If you are afraid of that person and so you obey them because they're going to punish you, if you don't, even when they're giving you an order just to give you an order, just to exercise control over you, just because they can, not because they need to, not because there's any benefit, practically speaking, aside from getting power over you. When people do that and you give in to it, watch out because they're not satisfied in any given instant or moment so long as they still question whether you're going to obey, whether you're going to ask how high when they say jump. That's how bullies are made is they tell somebody to jump and everybody just asks how high instead of standing up to them. Now, it's one thing when you don't understand the reason why, but there is a good reason why. And I think that's where you can test by asking why, not in a defiant argumentative way, but in a honest way. And if you know that the answer to the question of why is going to be because I said so, and this person doesn't necessarily have that kind of latitude with you, why embolden them? Why give them that power? You are giving them that power or not in that moment. You are emboldening them towards bad actions in the future or not. Society breaks down. Every human institution rises and falls based on our ability to counteract that instinct, that temptation. If you read Carnage and Culture by Victor Davis Hanson, he talks a lot about this, about the Western way of making war. And the Western way of making war is very different than, say, for instance, the Eastern way of making war. When the Persians try to invade Greece, the Greeks are able to stand against them because the Greeks have a Western way of thinking about the individual and the group and the situation. And when a general falls in battle or is unavailable for comment, a Western army does not fall on its face because there's still an ability to make decisions, decentral, because each individual thinks of themselves as an individual. That's not to be taken for granted. The Eastern way of making war is not that. The Eastern way of making war puts all of the power or as much as possible in a few hands. And if they're fantastically capable, well, then you might go far. But once something unexpected happens, usually having all your eggs in one basket, not so good. Not such a good setup. So consistently, the Western way of making war wins out. But the problem is where we don't 
teach history and we don't study history and we don't learn these lessons in school anymore and in popular society. Even people with a lot of experience get this mistaken notion that centralized decision-making is where it's at. Command, command and control, top-down. Let's tell people what to do. Let's get experts making all of the evaluations, assessments, and decisions. I hate to break it to you, it's a bad idea. And the people who say, wait a second, that's a bad idea. That's not the way we've been doing things. Well, that's the way we're going to be doing things now on. The people who object and say, hey, wait a second, hold the phone, not so fast. Yes, there are downsides to decentralized command, but you got to look at the benefits and not just the costs. If you're only looking at costs all the time, you might not be getting the whole picture. And if you're not doing the cost-benefit analysis on the alternative, you might sound an awful lot like these utopians. Our system of government is increasingly centralized. Our economy is increasingly planned from the top. How's that working out for us? Take a look at the lockdowns, the mask mandates, the lick your finger and hold it up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing today to know what the CDC guidelines are going to be what Dr. Fauci is going to advise. That's what you get from centralized planning, five-year plans. That's what you get. So be more like Maximus, less like Commodus. That's the lesson for today. And that's all I've got. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.